to another big episode of the Brothers Trek About, the original series. As always, from Austin, my name is Matt, and coming from Houston is Ken. Say hello, Ken. Live long and prosper. Well, this week we're going to be talking about the alternative factor. And boy, there are a lot of alternatives to this episode, let me tell you. <laughs> because uh, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes drama in this one. Two different kinds of behind-the-scenes drama, one of which was perpetuated by the other, but we'll get there and talk about it all. Uh, a lot of stuff happening, and I think that this is the this is the kind of uh, behind-the-scenes stuff that we find kind of waters down your television. You know what I mean? Your television viewing. So, of course, you know, they're trying to make everybody happy because when it comes to network TV, anybody can see it, which is probably why you're seeing more stuff on cable because uh, they're fine taking a smaller audience if the uh, product is better. So that's why we're seeing some, you know, breaking bads and some walking deads and those kinds of things. Cause like, especially like walking dead, just the violence of that show, you're not going to be able to get away with on, uh, <coughs> excuse me, on, on, uh, on network TV. So. And perhaps the, you know, like the ultimate examples of these would be like game of thrones and the, uh, the vampire drama. What was it? Uh, true blood. True blood. Yeah. Yeah. Where you had all kinds of language and sex and nudity, yep. n- not to mention the high levels of violence, and those did really, really well, but they had to be on cable where you basically had to subscribe to even look at yep. them. You had to basically seek them out mm-hmm. and pay for them. Yep, you had to actively get involved. You couldn't stumble on it in any way. And of course, uh, TV in the '60s was the ultimate stumble upon. You know, there's like three channels. <laughs> Exactly. All the kid has to do is get up off the floor, and boom, he could be on whatever you're watching. Exactly. So everything had to be super fam- family friendly. We were talking about it last week, or maybe two weeks. Yeah, last week. That uh, you know, e- even just making characters look like they'd been too badly injured. Yep. Was a no-no. Yep. <laughs> you know, everyone had to look like no one had experienced any kind of trauma at all. We do get some blood in this episode, though, so that's kind of fun. Although it comes and goes, doesn't it? <laughs> well, that's, we'll get to that, too, definitely. <laughs> so the writer of this episode, his name is Don Ingalls. He was a uh, former cop and friend of Gene Roddenberry. He was also, uh, you know, as Roddenberry was himself, he worked with uh, Roddenberry as a writer and then producer on Have Gun, Will Travel. So uh, he really wanted to write, write for uh, Star Trek. And so he came up with the initial idea of this, which was, you know, there was a... a a guy who was like basically searching for his white whale, which then happened to be himself. There was a side story in the middle of this episode, which we'll get to, talking about or uh, between who is now Engineer Masters, right? That's her name, and uh, Lazarus. It was something that they were sort of building into the thing, but for many reasons, as well, like I said, we'll get to. There were uh, changes in that romance as well. Uh, one of the other problems they had, too, with the initial treatment of that episode was that uh, Kirk wasn't used enough. And, of course, uh, both Roddenberry and the network really wanted Kirk to be more proactive in every episode. And so they definitely wanted uh, wanted him to be more predominant. So this is a, a feature of certain kinds of science fiction. And I think... And, and so what I'm talking about is where we identify not with the character who's doing the science fiction, but a character who's observing the science fiction. So, you know, we could call this, like, this trope the Watson, right? We're Watson, or we get into the story through Watson. I think one of the ways that the reboot, or the second generation, or however you want to think about Doctor Who, when it came back the second time, one of the reasons it was so successful is that they tended to focus our point of view much more with the the accomplice, the the traveler, the, the companion. The companion than we did through the doctor. Mm-hmm. So rather than seeing with the cuz 
you know, as time went on, you know, especially after Tom Baker, the doctors just got sillier and sillier. <laughs> yes. And part of it was, how do you make the doctor weird? How do you make the doctor hard to understand? Because we know too much about the doctor. So right. they just make him weirder and weirder until he got silly. And I think what they did, or you can see it, you know, there's a lot of episodes in which we're really following around the companion. Mm-hmm. And the doctor's behavior is confusing and mysterious because we don't know what he's doing. You know, and that makes the doctor not have to be silly because he's mysterious because we're we've got the point of view of a normal human who's you know living in linear time and the doctor comes and goes and and they do that here you know, so the, the it's it's the Lazarus character who is the one who's going between you know matter and antimatter between space and negative space yeah. not Kirk and Kirk is merely encountering him periodically and it turns out that he's actually encountering both Lazarus and anti-Lazarus and he he doesn't he can't distinguish the two because they're identical yeah one of them does not have a goatee (laughs) and so you know he's got to figure out this problem and it works the same way right this Lazarus character could be mysterious and be doing this very interesting science dealing with matter and antimatter and we're observing it we're witness to it rather than full-on participant. That's an unusual role for Kirk. But I think it works really well here. And it's good to have a story once in a while that works that way. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. You know, and it's funny you talking about the Doctor Who stuff is that, you know, sometimes I'll read the novelizations. Not, not, I won't say that, but sometimes I'll be reading some of the different Doctor Who novels out there. And I feel like the ones that work better are the ones that, <clears throat> where you're right, where you're <clears throat> not inside the Doctor's head. Because once you're inside the Doctor's head, then you're like, oh, well, he's probably... He's usually three steps ahead of whatever's happening. And so if you're inside the doctor's head, then you're like, well, well now we know what's happening. And uh, so, yeah, interesting point. So we went back and did another treatment of, uh, of the episode. And uh, Roddenberry was sat- satisfied. Kirk was more proactive. Uh, a non-regular was the central focus, which, like they had done with Charlie X, and that had worked. So that he knew what he had to do was cast Lazarus the right way. It had to be, uh, it had to be done. Roddenberry decided he knew who that right actor was, and he suggested that it was going to be John Drew Barrymore. Now, of course, John Drew Barrymore is the, uh, you know, part of that long Barrymore family that goes back into, you know, the late 19th century. And, of course, has a very famous daughter by the name of just Drew Barrymore. He's uh, one of those people who had been around uh, Hollywood for a long time, knew that he had the acting chops to pull off, uh, you know, playing two different people as well. So uh, he also knew that uh, by casting Barrymore, Barrymore, of course, that there'd be free publicity in the doing as well. So that was fun. Uh, Robert Justman, the producer, also figured out the uh, he was the one who came up with the idea of doing the like inverted black and white effect when they were in the corridor. Uh, his thought was is that this would also work really cool on color TVs, but also it would work on black and white TVs. So for those people who had black and whites, and it would work just as well on there. So after they finished the fourth draft, Roddenberry decided that there were four things that needed to be done. The first was is that they needed to uh, work on some of the dialogue, as they always do with the recurring characters. Um, the technology of the Enterprise had to stay faithful to what had already been established in the series. Greater emphasis had to be made to create the difference in personalities between Lazarus 1 and Lazarus 2. And uh, the last one is that uh, he felt that Lieutenant Masters could no longer betray her captain, because in that love story was going to end up very much similar, as you might think, to Space Seed. And since they were already in the middle of writing Space Seed and that they, they were liking how the uh, how that episode was turning out, worked a lot better in that episode than it did in this one. Roddenberry was even uh, even wrote in a memo. He says uh, he's not. It's not to say that women in love don't do strange, stupid, or selfish things, but do they have to do it in two of the scripts? <laughs> so yeah, that was his thought. Why? Well, I- I think it also creates a problem. So, you know, we think that our our crew is dedicated, that they have spent years and years just getting... You know, so we see this... Uh, we're living in a world that's post-discovery. You know, we see how, like, an Ensign Tilly will, will have this goal ahead of her, and, you know, part of it may be getting onto a Constitution-class starship. Right. 
And so here you've got a character who's on a Constitution-class starship, and they're going to throw it all away for a, a romantic, you know, like, I just met this guy, and that's yeah. hard to believe, right? I mean, it's one thing if, well, I'm just, you know, I'm in the Navy, and here comes this, you know, romantic thing, and I'm I'm getting off the boat, and I'm not coming back, and, yeah, you know, that you can kind of understand. If, it, if you're just in the Navy and you're there because, like, well, I kind of had to. I had a police thing, and the judge said, you know, enlist or go to jail. But, you know, it's like I worked really, really hard to get this posting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I was not an athlete, but I would run, 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 you know, to get my time to qualify to, uh, you know, get some commendation that would make it more likely that I would get on a Constitution-class starship. But, oh, look, here comes a handsome fella. So I'm throwing it all away. I'm just moving on. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we like to think that our our officers are dedicated people who would never betray the ship. Not just because they're loyal to the ship or loyal to captain, or, but because they're ideologically committed, because they've worked so hard to get where they are. Mm-hmm. There's too much at stake. Uh, so, as always, I got this uh, information from the awesome Cashman book. Uh, These are the Voyages Season 1. Uh, he writes early in the chapter about the removal of the romance story and what that does to the character by saying this. By taking out passages of dialogue where Lazarus number 2 admits to Charlene Masters that he is growing weary of the chase and is, in fact, lonely, then the audience has less reason to empathize with the character. That's you know it's true. You start taking out some of these some of these things that really help us buy into you know any said character, and suddenly the audience is a little bit more you know because it's funny a, a lot of that like white whale stuff you know um, again came from just re- you know reading the book because that was how they set out to do it, and it wasn't something I necessarily felt in the episode itself. You know, I never really felt that there was. I mean, yes, he was obsessed, but I didn't really like feel that obsession i didn't like necessarily sense it's kind of even said sort of once that he'd been you know chasing him for a while but it i just you just never get that big thing and so again empathizing with this lazarus who just comes across i think in the episode as this like strange guy doing weird things again you don't know there's two of them or what's going on but it's still it doesn't I, i don't think it necessarily reads like that right so uh, Gerd Oswald is the man who directed this episode. Uh, of course, everyone, all the producers were pleased with how he had handled the uh, conscience of the king. So they brought him back here for his, uh, his uh, second assignment. Did you want to talk about, go ahead and talk about uh, Janet McLaughlin there if you want to. Okay, so I think it's an interesting feature that this episode, we don't have Sulu, we don't have Scotty. Yeah. Instead, we've got Lieutenant Leslie and Lieutenant Masters. Yeah. And so we get a sense, you know, that the the ship is bigger than six people. Mm-hmm. That there's these important relationships. And, you know, they never tell us where Scotty or Sulu are. They, they're they just not there. We don't even get a line saying, well, he's working on the night crew. Because, you know, someone's got to be running the ship while Kirk's asleep. Well, I have an answer to that, actually. <laughs> yeah? Uh, which I'll share right now. Is that... They were supposed to be working in the dilithium interchange, uh-huh. not necessarily in main engineering. But when the people who were making the signs didn't make a dilithium interchange sign to put outside the door, they just put up engineering, which just made it all the more confusing. Because, yeah, you are asking the whole time, like, where's Scottish? Shouldn't he be handling this? Uh, you know, all of these things. But, of course, the real reason is because, technically, he's in another part of the ship. He doesn't have anything to do with, you know, where the crystals are currently. Right. And, you know, so she's, she's wearing blue. This yep. could be her, her specialty. Yep. You know, this could be the go-to person that when Mr. Scott goes to fix the dilithium crystals, he's like, you know, all right, Lieutenant Masters, you know, it's you and me down in the chamber. Yep. Well, there's so actually, there's we get... actually another behind-the-scenes reason for that one, too, which is because uh-huh. she was originally supposed to be a chemist. Ah. Uh, Lazarus is supposed to meet him in the, lounge, in the lounge scene, right? There's that one lounge scene. He's supposed to meet her there, and that's where the love affair is supposed to start. But then, when she got changed to engineering, nobody told wardrobe, so she didn't get the red. Yeah. You know, and I think it works better this way. Okay. I like the idea that 
engineering is going to be staffed with a lot of engineers. Right. And the occasional science officer who's going to, you know, have their expertise in the science that the engineering relies on. In this case, the dilithium crystals. Right. And also your occasional command branch officer, the person who's, you know, good at at the at the administration stuff to make sure that we have enough isolinear chips, that you know, there's enough of all the materials they need to be working on, that everything has been properly requisitioned, and that the officers have the proper qualifications to do all that administrative stuff that a command officer would do. And to a certain extent, you know, you can imagine your engineering officer having to go to, you know, the junior level command branch courses and get certified there, even though he never takes off his his red and puts on a gold. But, right. you know, there'll be times where there'll be a, where a guy who's working his way up he wants to be a captain. He spent some time, you know, in the engineering department supervising whatever he supervised before he got moved to something else. Yeah. So I like the fact that she. The other thing that's nice is that, you know, of course it's the '60s and you've got what's going on in the South, and here you have this, this black female officer like Uhura, but she's a scientist. She's engaged in like this critical plot you know, point about the science of the episode. Yeah. And so I think she comes across as the most engaging, the most interesting, the way they actually wrote it. There's no love interest. She's a scientist mm -hmm. from beginning to end. And, she, you know, she's a serious person. And she's involved in, you know, solving the problems. Yeah. Well, so she, as an actress, uh, you know, was kind of everywhere in the 60s and the 70s. Mm -hmm. You see her in almost all of the popular TV shows doing, you know, one or two episodes here and there. She did some work again in the 80s, uh, kind of, you know, not doing as much. A little more murder she wrote and that kind of stuff as she gets older. Uh, she does a few more of those in the 90s and then, uh, you know, basically retires. Well, so she was originally brought on, as we knew, to be the love interest here for Lazarus. And so uh, <clears throat> the reason was she would ca the reason she was cast was because she was black, because they wanted Star Trek to have television's first interracial lo love affair right. on screen, which, of course, they would have to save for later. Um, also, the wardrobe person said this. It was very courageous for her to wear her hair in an afro at that time, because uh -huh. most network television shows... Uh, wouldn't have let her do that. They would have made her wear a wig. But again, because Star Trek being, you know, what it is, the right. freeing environment, uh, it sent a very positive message. So they mm -hmm. were all really excited about that. But it was also at this point that Gene Kuhn began receiving a bunch of off-the-record phone calls suggesting that either Janet McLaughlin be replaced with a white actress or that the script be changed to remove the remaining scenes depicting any romantic interest between Lazarus and her. I think, you know, so you've got these two, we'll call them kind of the, you know, progressive interests of the show, right? Uh -huh. One is the idea of this interracial romance. The other one is this depiction of this successful black scientist, you know, in 1966. Right. And to a certain degree, they're in conflict with one another. And even though it worked out by chance, I'm actually happier that we got the scientist than... Had we gotten the romance. So in uh, Gene Kuhn's final revised version, the last traces of the love story were removed. Number one, this is again Cashman saying, Lazarus number one had lost all his charismatic traits and because of this was now intolerably annoying. Uh, the character of Charlie Masters is no longer a chemist and instead an engineering. So they haven't really worked it out yet. But, you know, ultimately... The purpose of the crystals is to, you know, moderate to control in the same way that control rods do in a nuclear reactor. Mm -hmm. The, the matter-antimatter interaction, which powers the ship. Right. Now, this whole show is about matter-antimatter, and they discuss it, but they never analogize it to the ship. Exactly. And they never explain why the crystals would be important. In fact, I almost suspect that they, that they post hoc realized, hey, you know... Uh, we use those crystals in that episode with the matter-antimatter. Maybe that's what powers the ship. Exactly. But so, you know, here, McMasters is working with this, the highest level of science at this, at this period. So, you know, 
Whereas chemistry is really kind of the 19th century science and nuclear physics was the 20th century science. Mm -hmm. You know, she's into matter-antimatter, which would be the 23rd century science. Yeah. So it's interesting at this point because now having seen the show, again, this was... I now probably understand why I'd never seen this episode before, but um, it's a real thin episode, you know? So I think that keep the only good thing about keeping the, the, the love affair side storyline would be to give a second story. It'd mm -hmm. be there to be a second story going on, right? Because right. there are a lot of, there are a lot of script issues in this and mostly it's a lot of Kirk and Spock, all right, all right. Let's go. Uh, let's go back to uh, what's been going on and see if we can't figure out uh, figure out what's happening. You know, I mean, there's like three different scenes right. where they're like, "Let's recap the episode and if you see, what we, you know, what new information we have." So I think that's the biggest. I think that's the biggest disappointment with me as far as losing the second story. It wasn't even necessarily that that second that particular second story that got cut, but that any right. second story got cut because it just feels a little thin and especially if that second right. story could have helped improve the character of lazarus i also think that would have helped too uh-huh yeah so as production starts uh john uh barrymore was not scheduled to work the first day of filming and uh was also currently unaware of what was happening with the script also at this time the two most popular show of the 60s that were receiving the most fan mail at this point of time was obviously one number one Star Trek, but can you guess what the second second uh, series might have been that received the most fan mail? Gunsmoke? Uh -huh. No, no, it was not Gunsmoke. It was the Monkees. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 fan mail. Yes, okay. exactly. <laughs> so if you can imagine the types of fan mail that the Monkees were getting and the types of fan mails that Star Trek was getting, I'm sure. Uh, right. I'm sure that uh, it blew my mind. Anyway. Right. Yeah. So during David, yeah, oh go ahead. Outdoing the monkeys because of course you know what else do, you know does a teen audience have but to like you know write letters to the, the object of their obsession right, right exactly. So for that many people to be writing into Star Trek, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's actually fun. The other, another thing I love about that Cashman book is that at the end of each episode, he like prints two or three of the letters that were sent to uh, Star Trek for that episode. It's it's pretty fun. So uh, during day one of filming, John Barrymore shows up to get his co final costume fitting and before leaving was given the revised script. At 5 p.m. that night, he sends word that he no longer wanted the role and refused to accept a work call for filming the following morning. With the cooperation of his agent and lawyer, Star Trek basically called and said, hey, you're committed. You have to report to work. So then Mr. Barrymore becomes unavailable and out of reach and his reasons were, were apparently that the script changes had altered the character that he wanted to play. So, bring in Robert Brown to come in play. Uh, William Shatner knew him because he had worked with him on an old uh, unsold TV pilot called Colossus. Didn't didn't he get uh, um, he like he he lost his SAG privileges for six months or something like this? Yeah, yeah. I was going to get to that at the end because there's also another <laughs> really cool Star Trek thing that happens <laughs> <coughs> that will connect that as well. Shatner knew this guy. Said, "Hey." Why don't we give him a call and see what happens? So literally at like 10 o'clock at night, uh, Robert Brown's down in Malibu. Roddenberry calls him up and says, hey, you think you could drive up here? I got something I want to show you. Of course, Robert Brown knew who, didn't have any idea who uh, Roddenberry was, had no idea what Star Trek was, but was like, uh, yeah, you know, I could probably come on up. Let's, you know, we can, I'll see, I'll see what's up. Yeah. And uh, so he drives up the hour and a half and gets... As soon as he gets to L.A., they're like, uh, yeah, cool. If you just want to follow us through to makeup, uh, we got some uh, wardrobe fitting we want to do real quick. And the guy's like, wait a minute. What are you, what are you talking about? Like, you just called me up and said, uh, you know, can you come up here and visit me? Not that I was going to do anything. And they're like, no, no, no. Look, we know you can do it. It's like this double part role. Shatner says you're awesome. You know, this is Roddenberry the whole yeah. time, right? <laughs> just like, look, it's fine. You right. know, we know that you can do this. He's like, look, I've got this contract with Shatner. That says that nobody can make more money per episode than he does. But uh, I'll, you know, I'll make something happen. I'll, I'll let you. I'll pay you what he makes, and I'll, I'll even put in a little extra myself. And then reaches into his pocket and pulls out a five dollar bill and hands it to, <laughs> hands it to Robert Brown. 
And uh, next thing you know, he's in wardrobe. <laughs> so uh, they arranged for him to stay at a motel, uh, you know, near the lot, and then that was it. So, of course, we are not only on the lot this episode, but we are back at Kirk's Rock. That's right. We sure are. Uh, and I, you know, Three days of filming out there. Yeah. And so we have two episodes in a row in terms of production. Yep. And you think about the way shows are made today. You know, where it's a lot more of, you know, they're not like, we got to hurry up and make the show because, you know, we're airing something <laughs> in eight days. Yeah, exactly. You know, we just finished editing last week's show, and it goes on tomorrow. <laughs> Eight days. This has to be ready. And so, with stuff being done much more in the... You'd have gotten your production together where you got... Well, let's do, you know, we got two episodes. Let's shoot them both at Kirk's Rock and get the, all that stuff out of the way with our different two, two scripts. And then we'll go back to the studio and do the other two episodes. And that way, you know, you wouldn't have to make... I don't know how many trips they had to make up there. Two, maybe three or four. Right. I don't know. But, you know, this is a kind of the thing that drives up the production costs. Well, you know, this script they didn't even have until, mm-hmm. like, yeah. the day before they started shooting. So, Also an interesting story on day one, NBC had uh, called down and said, uh, hey, look, I don't really dig this episode, which, of course, is not true because three days ago they had gotten a memo that said uh, – you know, actually, this is a very fun episode. We really like this episode, but so uh, they had decided they had decided that if there weren't some all more alterations done to the script, that they weren't going to accept they weren't going to accept the episode, so they wouldn't air it. And then if they didn't air it, NBC didn't have to pay for half of it right. like they normally did. So this is something that obviously comes into play much later. They had finally found their way to sort of you know pin down what they want to have happen with Star Trek. So as you can guess, that uh, there were a lot of problems uh, filming. That's why, as uh, you've already like alluded to, there are some uh, really crazy continuity errors. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff I make fun of later uh, that, of course, I didn't even know was like necessarily a continuity error. But then once I saw it, I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, the special effects in said episode are lame and not very interesting. But also, uh, the director was having a hard time keeping pace. Uh, again, this was, you know, supposed to be shot in five days. It ended up going seven days. So obviously that's a problem. Uh, Robert Brown was having a problem because he didn't understand. He didn't uh, immediately understand the style of the show. So suddenly being thrown into this as he was, he was uh, having trouble with the uh, the director at this point, uh, who even threatened to call SAG and tell him that he wasn't a good actor and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But if you can imagine, you know, can you imagine this? Shatner had vouched for him. Exactly. But, you know, if you can't imagine, you know, being thrown in, especially into this episode where you're talking about, like, multiple dimensions and, you know, how all these things work. It's just dialogue you've probably even never read or even seen before. Yeah, this is some real high-concept science fiction. Yeah. This is not, you know, uh, 20 years into the future kind of a... Everything works the way it was today except that we're using a little more technology. Right. This is crazy high concept, matter, antimatter, universe destruction, you know, lots of stuff going on here. And if you're not kind of steeped in science fiction, the way I think kind of everybody right. is now, right? In the, I think one of the most easy to understand tropes that would have blown people's mind in the 60s is the time travel yep. trope. We see them all, you know, we've got Back to the Future... We've got, you know, how many times does Star Trek do it? we got Doctor Who. Time travel just isn't a mind-blowing... Well, I, I don't even understand the script. First I'm here, then I'm there. It doesn't make any sense. And this has a lot of those kinds of elements with the matter-antimatter yeah. question. And what's at stake? You have to kind of understand Annihilation <laughs> to uh, even make sense of it. So here's what we were discussing earlier. Desi Lu files a complaint with the Screen Actors Guild about uh, about uh, uh, John Barrymore. Um, the hearing took place on January fourth, nineteen sixty-seven. Um, Carl Malden was heading up the hearing board, and also <laughs> I know consisting of it is it is Streets of San Francisco persona. Yes, definitely. 
also, the board consisted of two other names you might recognize, one of which is Charlton Heston, and the other being Ricardo Montalban. Convenient, yes. Uh. So, um, <clears throat> and he, so he's the, uh, now they're they're working just on the script. For, uh, he hasn't. Well, they haven't filmed yet. For Khan, <laughs> or he's he's done it by this time, right? Oh, oh probably by the time of the hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But by sixty-seven. Yeah. Uh, well, oddly enough, it looks like Joe D'Agosta, our resident casting director, couldn't remember either. Yeah. Uh, but he said this. Uh, Ricardo, yeah, we were uh, kind of friends with him because he had done the show or he was going to do the show, so he was a real ally. Charlton Heston, I remember him really working to see if we were just being some badass producers or whatnot. He wanted to make sure that this guy deserved some reprimand. I remember he was being very fair to Barrymore, but he too ended up agreeing with us. Barrymore then was found guilty of conduct unbecoming an actor of the Screen Actors Guild, was fined fifteen hundred dollars and was uh, had his SAG card removed for uh, six months. Yeah. Uh, one more thing worth mentioning before we uh, get to it, as always. Uh, the alternative factor was indeed the twentieth episode filmed, and was rescheduled to air last in the first season. However, because it's not a great episode, that's why. But the late delivery of the final two episodes produced, however, resulted in the schedule readjustment and then became broadcast as number 27. Yeah, it shows up really late. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Should we, Seven uh, whole we, weeks later. Yeah, should we talk about Eddie Paskey? Yeah, hit him. Um, so I think it's a good thing that the two episodes with Kirk's Rock got separated by as much time as they did. Two episodes in a row at the same location, probably gonna look funny. So, True. as I mentioned, you know, this is an episode with no Sulu, no Scott. Instead, we've got Lieutenant Masters and Lieutenant Leslie. So, Lieutenant Leslie is played by Eddie Paskey. And if you look him up on IMDb, he's got credits for being in like 40 episodes as Lieutenant Leslie. Really? Yeah. And here's the deal Paskey is. Shatner's stand-in. Oh. He's always on set. Yeah. And so, Lieutenant Leslie turns out to be a guy who's walking around in corridors, sitting in the back of the, you know... He, you could always put him in costume and say, sit right here, you know, you're going to be in the background while this goes on. Yeah. He only has three speaking parts. And the alternative factor is his biggest role as Lieutenant Leslie. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, Interesting. He, he, he gets some actual dialogue, and he gets to be the guy who fires the phasers that destroys Lazarus' ship. Um, so he's only got he's only credited on one episode as Lieutenant Leslie. This episode, he gets credited once again as crewman, and but he, you know he ends up in like forty episodes. He speaks like three times in the beginning. So like in Man Trap and Naked Time, he was credited as Lieutenant Ryan. He gets credited as just Connors in Mud's Women and Enemy Within. And then at some point they realize, you know, we're using him a lot. Yeah. Let's just use the same name all the time. And after that, he just gets called Leslie. Although in the, in various scripts, Leslie is spelled different ways. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so it, he's totally just like the ultimate background character. Right? Who's, you know, just a guy walking in a hallway... A guy sitting in the cafeteria, you know, a guy who hands somebody something or is standing behind Scotty operating controls when Scott's saying, you know, do this, do that. So, of yeah. course, you, re you read his biography <laughs> as a character and it's like, you know, he's one of the most cross-trained characters in Star Trek. Because <laughs> 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 he shows up everywhere. <laughs> That's amazing. Just using Shatner's stand-in to like be in the back of a, you know, a, I need crewman, <laughs> quick. So, one of the things that that he himself says, you know, see, so he's got like a, a couple of good quotes. Um, you know, one of them is, "I was very careful to be somewhere else when the script called for someone to die because I was on the set all the time and I knew what was in the script. I didn't want something to happen to my character because that would have put me out of the show." <laughs> <laughs> 
Good thinking. Yeah. Uh, he's also said, it doesn't bother me that I'm not famous. Sometimes people look at me and say, you look familiar. But I don't tell them I'm on Star Trek. So he worked into the third season. He, he quits during the third season. And, you know, there's kind of several reasons for it. One is his third quote here on IMDb. When I was acting, it was a fun time. It was interesting, and every day was a challenge. But it's not a very secure job when you have a wife and child. Hmm. The other thing that happened is in one of the scenes where uh, Spock has to give him the Vulcan nerve pinch, you know, characters often will, like, throw themselves, right? They bend their back, they contort, they... You know, do whatever they do. And apparently yeah. one time he, he injured his back. Oh, no. In the same way that, like, you know, Mark Hamill, you know, burst a blood vessel in his eye, wrestling with the, the rubber monster in the the uh, garbage chute. Yeah. So he hurt his back, and uh, the studio lights were giving him headaches. So by the third season, he said, yeah, this is enough. <laughs> <laughs> But he, That's fair. <laughs> so Lieutenant Leslie has 40 episode credits, or, or thereabouts. You know, I counted. Um, and, you know, I didn't want to just count, uh, you know, Ryan and... and uh, So he's got more. He's in basically yeah. almost every episode. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> he's often just walking around in the background. So that, that's Lieutenant Leslie. <laughs> All right. Well, if we've got nothing else to talk about behind the scenes... As always, let's get to it! Captain's log, starting. It's five-year mission. Again, I just want to reiterate that when I watch the episode, I try to watch the episode going into it with only knowing whatever past knowledge I have or whatever. So I haven't read the book, I haven't read the the behind-the-scenes stuff until after I watch the episode, because there's a lot of stuff happening in this episode that... I'm like, I don't even know what this is. What is happening? And then, of course, it's explained by the uh, by the book. So there's that. Plus, I haven't seen this. I'd never seen this episode before. Like, nothing even rang a bell. So it was a lot of fun to sit down and watch, like, a fresh, brand-new episode of, you know, Star Trek, the original series, and uh, and enjoy it in that way. So at the top of this episode, um, okay, so here's already the start of, say this, having said everything I just said, now I'm going to say this. Here is the start of like some of that filler stuff that we were talking about by lack of script, you know, by thin script. Because at the top of this episode, we see Spock looking into, you know, his bright blue scanner, as he always does. And then literally nothing happens for 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then Kirk signs a thing. Yeah. And Spock continues to stare at the scanner. So this, this was know? like the – so I'm, I'm watching this, and we get this woman in gold – so she's in command branch. Yeah. She's not a yeoman. So again, we get like unfamiliar characters doing the job that, you know, we're kind of used to. And uh, then, of course, you look at the, the helm and the navigator, and we don't know any of those guys. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm at first, you know, kind of digging the, we don't know these characters. This is, you know, some new characters going on here. Well, and then and then nothing happens. Like they, they, don't, they don't even get lines. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like my note is nowadays they would never waste so much time in an episode. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. They didn't even fill it with the captain's log, which is what they would do now. It'd just right. be like captain's log. We are scanning this unknown planet to see if we find anything and blah blah blah. But like yeah. they don't even do that. They just fill it with like space. Uh, so then Kirk asks for Spock's report, and uh, Spock gives it. But we still don't know what Spock is even scanning for. You know what I mean? He says that it's well, it's made up of what you would normally think of this, 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 and this. And you're like, is that a planet? Is that a ship? I don't even know what's yeah. happening here. Uh, Kirk says uh, two more orbits, and then uh, we're going to lay in a course for uh, Starbase One. Spock then uh, seems like he's about to warn the captain of something, and then out of nowhere, uh, I don't know, space is attacking. I don't know what's happening here with these special <laughs> effects. It's like, I don't, I don't even know what it's supposed to be reminiscent of. I just know that space is attacking in some way. <laughs> I feel like it's just energy. 
Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, then why not just do, like, you know, your normal, like, weird special special effect at that point? Why, like, yeah. why is it like a nebula, you know, right, that yeah. they're showing a picture of with <laughs> yeah, a star over, field? Yeah, overlaying a nebula every time they had the effect going on was kind of cheesy. <laughs> yeah. It was really, now, of course, it's funny because when you read through the script, right, mm-hmm. you know, they actually said, like, there's a grinding noise. And then, you know, like, it explains really cool all these things that they probably could not have even done in the 60s had they tried. But it's like right. to even just do this, this weird layover of this, like, <laughs> this picture of the nebula and the star field was like, yeah, that's not going to do it. Yeah, so they, <laughs> you read the script, and you're like, oh, this is going to be so cool. Yep. And then you hand it to the production guys, you're like, how the hell do we do this? <laughs> exactly. We can't do this. That we could probably do, but it's going to cost you $100,000. <laughs> this we could do, but it'd it take us like a month. We're like, right, well, exactly. W- 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 what can we do? Uh, how about we overlay a picture of, like from a telescope? <laughs> well, how much would that cost? We could mock it up in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> damn okay let's do that yeah we're already you know over budget what does it matter yeah well and you think about it the special effects come at the end so they, they really know that they're on day seven yeah you know, exactly. we spent seven days filming we're 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 cheaping out on everything so you know no overtime for the sound guy no overtime for the visual effects crew you know it's like what's the cheapest you can do uh, overlay a picture from a telescope <laughs> guess that's gonna do it <laughs> sorry i'm trying to find that point in the script where it talks about or in the book or that chapter where it talks about what it was supposed to be yeah how cool the special effects would have been yes exactly so uh, so according to the script this is what it was supposed to be there's a terrible grinding sound at the same moment the entire ship becomes transparent We can see the stars through the ship. All personnel are thrown from their seats, and there is a wild noise of static as some vast interference was ripped through the entire universe. Yeah, that does sound way cooler. And you can see why they're basically, uh, how do we do that? Let's just overlay a picture from a telescope. Yeah, over Kirk, not even over the ship. (laughs) Right, yeah. As though everything becomes transparent. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, in, uh, in the world of Adobe, and of course their magazine is called Layers, mm-hmm. you know, you'd think, well, what we'd do is, you know, we'd have a layer of Kirk, we'd have a layer of, like, the scenery behind him, and then we would imagine, well, what's behind that wall? You know, maybe you'd see the back of the ship, because they're up on that little dome, Right. Right. And, you know, you'd, you'd have these three layers, Kirk, the wall behind him, the ship extending out backwards. And then you'd, like, do your, each one would get, you know, slightly less transparent. And then you'd have the overlay of the transparency and you'd be like, ooh, I can see out. Everything did become, but, of course, you know, it's like, well, all they needed was some Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> right, geez, where was that in the 60s? Come on. So uh, Spock explains that the entire magnetic field in the system just simply blinked. The mass of the planet had zero gravity. Did they just blink out of existence? General alert from Starfleet, but we don't know what it says yet. And suddenly life appears on the planet, and it appears to be human. And its appearance happened at the same time as the cosmic winking out. It's also possible that this being could cause a threat to the ship. So, with an armed contingent, Kirk is ready to beam down. Opening credits! Back from the commercial! On the planet, back at Vasquez Rocks, Captain's Log, 3087.6. And no new information is divulged in the Captain's Log. <laughs> they find a ship. It's with a bubble on it, and it looks like it, it's, it's one of those like typical 50s UFO yeah. things. It, it almost looks like a playground like toy or something. It does. And, you know, so you think about it for a little bit, and you're imagining kind of a pilot's cockpit, you know, and you watch, like, Dunkirk, and they're slightly more, you know, they have supports and metal parts to them, but basically, it's a big little metal dome, so you can look forward, you can look backward. Right. And so, what is their experience in flying? It would be 
well, you know, like World War II fighter jets or fighter, you know, uh, aircraft. Yeah. And so, well, they got this canopy so the guy can see around as opposed to, no, no, he'd be inside like a totally solid object, like a space capsule, and he'd be using sensors. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> to drive by. Happened. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's, he's got a canopy. <laughs> exactly. And the funny he's thing is that's supposed fire. to be... That's supposed to be either a time machine or some kind of like interdimensional like traveling, and that's it. That's what they came up with. I mean, I'm not saying a police box was the best idea in the '60s either, but like this is what they came up with. Had some character. That's true, exactly. So uh, they find the ship, and then suddenly a man yells, and he says, "You came! We can still stop him!" And then sort of staggers and falls. The away team runs up to him. Go ahead. I love the falling because, you know, knowing what we know about how things are made, you see a guy falling like, oh, he's falling onto like a bag that's up there that we can't see. Yeah. And then like they go up to him and and he's just laying on a rock. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, there's we have a little too much behind the scenes knowledge of how this stuff is done. Yeah. I was thinking it probably wasn't even a bag. It was probably like just a mat. Like they just laid down a couple of like judo mats or something. And then that was that. Uh, the away team runs up to him, unconscious They uh, unconscious he is, and they beam him to the ship. Back on the bridge, Kirk is told that the phenomenon has drained most of their space crystals and then asks them to reamplify it. That's what Miss Masters tells us. Scans have shown nothing further, but as widespread as it was, it was concentrated from the planet below. Uhura then receives a message from Starfleet Command. Condition Alert 1, which means... Invasion. Then we get a hail from McCoy down in the sick bay. The patient will be all right. Convenient timing that suddenly he's so fine. Then on screen, uh, then on screen, we get a message from the Commodore. The Commodore tells us that the phenomenon has happened in every quadrant of the galaxy and even further beyond than that. Was this a natural phenomenon or machine made? Kirk is now taxed with finding out if this, if this is in fact an invasion or a weird quirk of nature. The Commodore also says no other ships can help. He's keeping them all within a hundred... I can't remember. Parsecs or... He's keeping them all away from the area. Uh, It's down to the Enterprise alone. Kirk calls it. So we're the bait. Good luck, is all the Commodore throws (laughs) his back at him. Well, thank you, Commodore. Kirk and Spock... Uh, now have one of their uh, first meetings where they reevaluate what's been happening. Spock decides to do a thorough analysis of the planet and decides to beam down. Kirk then goes to talk to the mysterious stranger. The stranger says that he has been chasing the devil spawn himself. He looks humanoid, but inside is a hideous creature. I was thinking this sounds like Thanos, you know, from (laughs) Infinity War. He gives you these crazy descriptions. And then, of course, when you realize, oh, it's you. You're chasing yourself. Yeah. You're like, you know, so he must be totally messed up to have those kinds of distortions where you don't see yourself. You know, because he could have said, you know, I'm, I'm facing my own doppelganger, and you know, but he's evil and I'm good. And, you know, but no, it's like I'm chasing the devil's spawn and he's, he's, he's humanoid. Yeah, is yeah. that how, like, if you saw your twin, you'd be like, well, I noticed a humanoid. <laughs> so exactly. I think at some level he could not detect that he was basically looking at himself. Yeah. Uh, the stranger says that uh, he was off-planet when he apparently destroyed the man's world. He claims that the mag- magnetic ships are coming from the strange being and that he is uh, making everything happen. Down on the planet... Spock searches the ship and comes up empty. He's also been searching for another another creature on the planet, but that too is empty. So Spock calls Lazarus a a liar. And then suddenly Lazarus is struck again by space. Space is now attacking Lazarus. Uh, then suddenly we see a, a battle between uh, two people in a, in a negative universe happen, and it's upside down, and it's 
slow-mo as well. I don't really know what's happening here. But then it all ends with a newspaper headline. <laughs> and Lazarus is worse for wear. Lazarus then screams, kill, 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 as we go to commercial. He's suddenly a crazy man again. Weird. Back from the commercial, we get Captain's Log. Stardate 3088.3. It's early in the morning. Spock and Kirk dis- uh, dissect again what's happened. And nothing new is sussed out. Uh, except that these uh, phenomenon keep happening whenever uh, Lazar- Lazarus gets his attacks in sickbay. Lazarus's healing power seems to be considerable. Suddenly, no evidence of his wounds are noticeable, according to McCoy. Again, we wonder, what is this guy's story? It's what's driving the story now. In the lounge, we find Lazarus. Go ahead. And we get McCoy, who at this point describes himself as an old country doctor. Old southern doctor. (laughs) Uh, So now we're in the lounge, and we just see Lazarus, like, just hanging out in the lounge. And uh, Masters is sitting there, and Leslie comes in and says, uh, the reamplication of the crystals uh, are back... uh, are back are, are up in working order, and off they go. And Lazarus's interest is now piqued, and he follows. He leaves the lounge, but it then has another uh, has another <laughs> attack from space. And then there's another grapple with something in a weird universe or something. And then Kirk and McCoy find Lazarus, who suddenly uh, who suddenly has wounds again. Spock calls Kirk to uh, the bridge. Kirk heads that way, saying to, saying a completely unfunny line where he's like, uh, "Bones, if I had time, I'd laugh." <laughs> okay, sure. So then Spock shows Kirk a, a a new source of radiation. However, nothing is there to cause it. Spock says, "Possibly is a rip in the universe." And somehow, <laughs> I don't understand this, but they use dilithium to find this rip. That's where the radiation is coming from. Yeah, so it, you know, in this episode, it feels like it's applied phlebotanum, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. You know, we've got this thing on the ship, the dilithium. We'll just use it to detect whatever. <laughs> How? We don't know. We don't care. It's the future. It's science. <laughs> That's right. And then later on, we kind of, I think, you know, retcon in. Ah, dilithium is used to modulate the antimatter you know, matter interactions that power the ship. So it's, I mean, but here they're just. So that works though. Yeah, that works. It does, but it, it's totally retconned. I think. I think what they're doing here is strictly phlebotanum. Yeah. But it still works because, like, if 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 it is matter antimatter that is causing whatever this new source of radiation is, then it could make sense that perhaps, sure, they, you know, the crystals are uh, doing that. Yeah, from from our our retconned position, it makes perfect yep. sense. Uh, so now Lazarus says that crystals are uh, the key to destroying the creature. And then Lazarus... We need the Geordie commentary. <laughs> right, exactly. Explain all Where of this. Where Geordie explains it to us, right? yeah. With lots and lots of... Actually, at this point, We're we like, could oh, just... Michael sense, Okuda right? could probably help us out more, more than Geordie could. <laughs> just get LeVar Burton going, I don't even know what this is. I don't even know what are they even talking about. <laughs> Let me read you a story. How about a little train? <laughs> I had a hairband on my face for seven years. <laughs> so uh, Lazarus then swears that he'll have the crystals. He'll take them. And then just kind of walks off. And then is attacked again in an inverted grapple. That's what I started calling that. It's the inverted grapple. Then, uh, oh, and so then here it is where I said, my guess is, is that it is him who is being, like, torn... So this is my original theory, was that he is being torn apart by the two universes, and he's grappling himself to try and keep himself together. That's what I thought. Uh Or I said perhaps he is a fugitive from some other universe. Those were my two thoughts. Anyway, then uh, Lazarus goes into engineering, and uh, he takes out uh, (laughs) what I wrote as this week's engineering guy. Commercial. Back to it. Captain's Log, Stardate 3088.7. Much more of the day has passed, and we're halfway through the uh, the episode at this point, so we get a captain's log that fills us in on all the things that would happen in case somebody tuned in at the uh, 9 o'clock hour as opposed to at 8.30. Right. Um, mm-hmm. 
Then here's my question. Can you just take the crystals out of engineering like this? Like, they're just barehanding these crystals. I mean, we saw what happened to Spock in, uh, you know, Star Trek II. Yeah. I don't know if uh, just opening up the door and taking the crystals out is exactly going to work. <laughs> well, again, I think they have no idea what the crystals yep. are doing and how they're used. They just exist, and somehow the crystals... It's, it's almost like, you know, if, if this were a world of fairies... And it's like, well, the seasons are controlled by the magic crystals. We go to the Happy Glen where the, you know, the fireflies dance <laughs> around. And we just hear, like, there's a summer crystal and a fall crystal and a winter crystal and a spring crystal. We're going to take the summer crystal to Happy Land and we're going to, you know, spread the happiness. I wish they summer. would have done that. That would have been quite <laughs> nice. <laughs> we see all the seasons have to be working together to get the dilithium to work. That's right. <laughs> so, you've got so in that sense, you know, magic crystals, that's basically how they're being used. They're magic right. crystals, and they, they power the ship. How? Magic. magic. So uh, Lazarus now claims that the beast is the one who took the crystals. So is Lazarus the creature, I ask myself? Is this like Jekyll and Hyde? Is he the sa- So now I'm thinking maybe they're the same person. And again, his personalities are torn apart like Enemy Within or something. On the planet, still no crystals and no radiation signature either. It too has disappeared. So they go in search of... Sorry, that was a dumb letter Nimoy joke. It looked better on the page. <laughs> <laughs> so they split, up, uh, they split up with Lazarus. And then he's attacked again. And somehow they can all feel it when they're on the planet, but not on the ship. When they're on the planet, they're all getting, you know, wind blown at their face, but on the ship, it doesn't quite make any sense. Okay, whatever. Kirk tr- uh, tries to find Lazarus again. Then, weirdly, Lazarus knocks a boulder off of the roof, but then warns Kirk before it falls on him. Back in sickbay, Kirk reinterrogates Lazarus. The ship's lie lighter- detector has called Lazarus a liar. His home planet doesn't exist. You better give me the truth. So he calls himself a time traveler. His ships, or his ship is his time machine. Lazarus claims that the creature has, uh, or that, oh, okay. So we get the other side of it, which is Lazarus claims that the creature has chased him all over time to a dead planet, a dead earth, and I came in the past to stop him. He must be stopped, he screams, and then Lazarus passes out again. Kirk and McCoy leave him alone. Bone stops in the doorway, unsure whether or not he should leave him or not. To which point I ask, why don't they just put a force field in that doorway? I mean, yeah. come on. How many times have people just escaped from sickbay? Because they, they like come to consciousness and wander away. And yeah, exactly. And scene where he's like, where is Lazarus? I don't know. It's a big ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, doctor. <laughs> is your patient? Shouldn't you be paying attention? <laughs> or post a guard or a... Yeah, something. And again, here, as he's walking out the door, Lazarus is attacked again. Again. Spock and Kirk sit down to hash things out. What is happening? <laughs> Spock hypothesizes that perhaps the radiation is coming from another universe. Kirk takes this chan- tangent and runs with it. Perhaps, if it was a negative universe, were to meet a positive universe, it would leave a warp. Or a hole. And it might explain this phenomenon that's happening. Is it a large-scale invasion? No, says Spock, but it could be a small one. Or just one. They pick apart again what they know of Lazarus, as if he were two men. Yes, it is. It's two men. They have figured it out. One with a wound and one without. He must be stopped, says Spock. One is matter, one is antimatter. They can never meet, because if they did, it would be the total annihilation of everything. Although, the antimatter guy, shouldn't he, like, everything he touches... Annihilate the matter. Okay, okay. We'll just pin that on the wall here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We'll put a pin on it and get back to it later. (laughs) Like 50 years later. (laughs) Lazarus then does a bit of sabotage and some high voltage stuff. Turns out that he shorted out the energizer in the engineering. That's a slow smoldering burn for some crazy high voltage. (laughs) I know, right? Exactly. Uh, Our two colleagues in engineering now escape, and Lazarus runs in. There's a fire in engineering, and Kirk and Spock run down. Lazarus then uh, knocks out the guy and then transports himself off the ship with the crystals. And then Kirk follows. 
Boy, that transporter chief recovered fast, didn't he? Did he just not knock him out? Did he, like, knee him in the nuts? Like, what happened there? I don't even know. But suddenly he's fine, and he can transport Kirk down now. So Kirk finds Laz- Lazarus and reaches and reaches into the ship. Lazarus yells, no, as Kirk disappears. Commercial. Back at it. We see Kirk in inverted space now. Or maybe the upside-down world. I don't even know what it is. Now, let's again... Uh, read in the script what was supposed to happen and then compare it to what they actually did. Kirk is spinning through a terrible white and black in slow motion terror, grabbing at space that comes off in fluffy hunks of nothing, suspenseful beats of falling, twisting, then shimmering again. Everything fades and we brighten to the next scene. As opposed to this where Kirk just kind of runs through a doorway, looks around, then runs back through the doorway. Okay, whatever. That's cool. You know, it's funny because about the this inverted thing like they did it. I know there was an episode of Hulk, The Incredible Hulk, where this happened. There was an episode of The Greatest American Hero where he goes into another dimension and they use this. So I was just I was getting throwbacks to all of that <clears throat> during this. Kirk then is thrown out of the corridor. Night at Vasquez Rocks. He finds the ship and he finds the other Lazarus. This seems to be a much calmer Lazarus. So the other must be the madman, I, I conclude. This version of Lazarus asks for Kirk's help, Kirk's help, but there's little time left. The corridor is like a prison. Uh, is like a Well, it's not like a prison. I don't know why I wrote that. It will be like a prison, but anyway, the corridor is uh, keeping both universes safe. One corridor between them both. Good Lazarus's plan is to send Kirk back, force the evil Lazarus into the corridor, then destroy the ship. This will somehow destroy the good Lazarus ship as well and lock the door, the corridor on both ends. So I didn't understand how destroying the one ship was going to destroy the other ship, but I guess that's just another thing we'll just put up on the wall and worry about later. Um, da, 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 da. Lazarus, The good Lazarus says, this is a small price to pay for the safety of two universes. Kirk is then sent back. He fights the evil Lazarus, which is not only a really bad, poorly shot scene, but also doesn't make any sense because you've got both Spock and the security guards just standing there watching these two guys fight it out. Like, why didn't just the other two security guards just throw him into the ship? (laughs) So uh, they go... uh, uh, He fights the evil Lazarus. They throw him into the ship. The evil Lazarus is sent back into the corridor. The two men locked forever in fighting. From the bridge of the Enterprise, they destroy the ship, locking these two in. A fight forever. All right, so I said, hey, we got a lot more space in this episode because here we have another odd 30 seconds of Kirk yelling out an order. Space. Space. The con acknowledging those orders. Space. Space. And then the actual firing of the phasers. <laughs> it is done. The ship is destroyed. The doors are shut forever. They took the crystals from the evil Lazarus's ship. But what about the two crystals that were in the good Lazarus's ship? I mean, they said earlier that the ship can't function at the capacity with, at capacity with just two crystals. Never mind. We'll put that up on the wall as well. <laughs> Spock mourns that Lazarus is stuck forever in the corridor. But the universe is safe. The end. They should have ended it had they known. They should have ended that all with, do remember, Captain, that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That's or right. the one. Well, that wraps up that episode. Uh, one last point to make. The alternative factor cost $210,879 to make. That would be $25,000 over the per episode allowance provided for by the studio. The first season deficit... First season deficit, now at $46,000. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, that wraps up that episode, sir. Anything else you want to uh, talk about? Anything we haven't gotten to? So, Lieutenant Leslie probably comes pretty cheap. You know, they had to pay <laughs> True. him for, he, he uttered some lines. Yep. And he got a credit, so you know, he got paid more today. But I have to imagine that, that paying for Lieutenant Masters and Lieutenant Leslie was cheaper than having Sulu and Scotty on. That's probably true. 
and they still fell behind. <laughs> well, you know, all those space effects. Well, and if they did end up paying that one guy as much as Shatner was getting. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They weren't saving the money. That's like that 5000 an episode or something ridiculous. That's probably more than they were going to pay John Barrymore. Could well be. All right, so next week, tomorrow is yesterday. So this is an episode that I know a little bit of. I remember watching it as a young person, although I don't remember the specifics at all. Of I know this, this is where they slingshot around the sun, right, like in, like in 4. And I know that they run in there's – there's like a funny scene with a security guard who like – Keeps running into them. I don't know. Some kind of ridiculous. <laughs> some kind of security guard. Uh, that's about all I remember this episode. And it takes place at NASA too, right? Doesn't it? Yes. Or an Air so, Force base. Yeah. 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 So uh, I'm excited to d- dig into that episode. It should be a lot of fun. Uh, that'll do it for this right. week. As always, I am Matt from Austin. This is Ken from Houston saying goodbye. Say goodbye, Ken. Peace and long life. That's right, and we will see you all next week. (laughs) 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 (laughs)